0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Monday, December the 19th, 2022. Regular viewers of the show know that we've spent a lot of time this year talking about animals, animal rights and wrongs and how we learn about ourselves as a species, uh, human species from other species. Um, did a show with Ed Yong, for example, the New Yorker writer. He has a magnificent new book out. It's on a lot of the best of bo- uh, books for 2022, An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. Another one with uh Justin Grego has a fascinating new book out. If Nietzsche were a narwhal, what human in what animal intelligence reveals about human stupidity, not human intelligence. Um, lots of other conversations about uh, animal rights. One with the great uh, animal rights activist and writer Carl Safina. Becoming wild: how animal cultures raise families, create beauty, and achieve peace. Um, even one earlier uh, this year with the Canadian academic Karen Backer, uh, who has written a book called The Sound of Life, which is about the technology that will allow us quite literally to be able to talk, in her view, with animals. What do we need to learn about animals? Maybe, uh, according to one of our guests, Devin Price, we can learn about how we can separate ourselves, emancipate ourselves from work. Uh, others, like uh, the great natural uh, naturalist writer Sy Montgomery, talks us about uh, in her work on hawks about what we can learn about humility. Um, and then, of course, there are the animal wrongs. We did a show a couple of weeks ago with the journalist Chloe Sorvino uh, on um, the inhumanity of factory farming and its treatment of, of animals. Her book. Raw Deal, Hidden Corruption, Corporate Greed, and the Fight for the Future of Meat is an important uh, polemic. Um, All of this, of course, suggests that something is brewing uh, when it comes to animal rights. And I was particularly intrigued to come across a new book. It's out uh, the first week of uh, January uh, by one of America's most distinguished philosophers, Martha C. Nussbaum, uh, a book about justice for animals our collective responsibility martha is joining us uh congratulations martha on the new book um bob dylan of course famously wrote you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind's blowing is that true when it comes to animal rights there's so much stuff on it do you see yourself as 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 following the wind or creating the wind or a little bit of both
1: I think a little bit of both. Of course, I admire those other books that you've had programs on, so I'm very honored to be in their company. And uh, actually, I reviewed Carl Safina's Becoming Wild in the New York Review of Books and the others I I mainly know. And so, yeah, I think a lot has been happening in the sciences, and we're learning so much more about animals. But I, I felt that we needed to catch up on the theoretical basis. So we really have very inadequate theories of why we should treat animals well. And so since I'm a philosopher, that's my job to create normative theories of what we should do. So I decided to create a new theory of how and why we should treat animals better that I think is better than the other ones that we have on hand.
0: You use the J word uh, Martha in your book on the title justice. It's a word that philosophers like. How would you define the word justice and why did, do you entitle the book Justice for Animals?
1: Well, what I think justice is, or well, let me start with injustice. Injustice is when an intelligent, sentient creature is blocked from doing things that it would like to do by action that's either negligent or malicious. So, of course, human beings encounter that a lot but so too do other animals. And so I think it's that root intuitive notion of th- this is wrong, this shouldn't happen, that it captures our sense of justice. And so then we have to have a theory of what, what justice would require of us, what is wrong and what is right in this area. And that's where I step in.
0: Uh, you, use, um, uh, you use the word normative. Is your theory of justice... Uh a utilitarian one. I mean, could you maybe uh, explain how you define justice in this book in terms of the need for justice for animals?
1: Okay, by normative, I just mean the theory of what we should do, not a descriptive theory of what's already happening. Um, There are, I would say three leading normative theories that are around right now. The first one is a theory that I call the so like us approach, which is the approach used by animal activist and thinker, Stephen Wise, who's the head of what's called the Non-Human Rights Project. Wise is a very creative lawyer and he's argued cases on behalf of animals, trying to get them from captivity into better surroundings in animal sanctuaries. One case involving an ape, another involving an elephant. But his theory is that we should favor animals that seem most like us and only a few make the grade. So only apes, elephants, and whales get any attention at all from his theory, and only on the grounds that they're higher up the ladder of nature. So he uses this very traditional idea that nature consists of a ladder where humans are on the top step, because closer to the heavens, so to speak, and then uh, everyone else lags on behind. Now, I have quite a few problems with that approach, and I want to mention those before I get to the other approaches. Yeah, and
0: just to be clear, I, you you go in, in your book, you talk about lots of different animals from dolphins to crows, elephants and octopuses. So uh, no. you, so you really idea. don't buy that theory.
1: Now, my first problem with Wise's theory is exactly that, that it offers absolutely nothing for the vast majority of animal species. Now, I think that's not really Steve himself. He just wants to say what he thinks will move judges. And he thinks he can get judges to care about apes and elephants, but not yet about the other creatures. But the theory you use when you go into court will influence what you get to do many years down the line. And so he offers nothing for the... Martha, let me ask,
0: and you you probably had to deal with these dumb questions because you're a a professor and had students in asking these kinds of questions endlessly. But but where does your theory of, of life and animals stop? What about mosquitoes or ants? Well okay, okay.
1: but I first haven't gotten to my own theory. So let me say something. Um, I mean, I would like to say something about the theories that we have. So go on, yeah, and then and come then, back in to that. To I for my that one in. Um yeah, okay. So so anyway, Steve's other problem is that he really it's the wrong reason to treat animals well because because of us, not because of what they are. And I think any theory of justice has to be about the recipient and what's good for the recipient. So anyway, that's the first theory. Then the second one, and you mentioned utilitarianism, is indeed the utilitarian theory. Way back in the 1790s, Jeremy Bentham started out this theory by pointing out that animals suffer just the way human beings do. And he thought there was no difference to be made between the two. And Bentham argued that pain is the one great bad thing in nature and that pleasure is the one great good thing. And so he then predicts that if we stop causing animals pain, it will be just as revolutionary a transition as he thinks that stopping the slave trade has already been. Of course, he was a little too optimistic about that one, I would say. But anyway, he thinks it's just as irrational to treat animals differently as it is to treat people differently on the grounds of the color of their skin. Now, that theory was great. It blew open the... The door, in a way. It let us think about animals as deserving of just treatment. But the problem is that it focused only on pain and it flattens the world too much. Now, animals like humans do need freedom from pain, but there are lots of other things that they need. They need the society of other animals of similar kinds, sometimes of other kinds. They need large spaces to move around in. So, you know, there are zoos that don't inflict pain. And yet they deprive animals of company. They deprive them of space. They deprive them of diverse things to imagine and play with and so forth. So that's the reason I don't like that one. And you can see it's a lot better than the first one, but still not good enough. And then more recently, there's a theory that my own student, Christine Korsgaard, has developed in a great book called Fellow Creatures. And it's based on Immanuel Kant. But she really develops it well beyond the historical Kant because the historical Kant didn't have much to say about animals. But Korsgaard thinks that materials from Kant's theory could be used to develop a notion of what it is to treat an animal as an end, not just as a means. Now, a lot of that book is great. And I think we are in agreement about many things. But because she starts from Kant, who very centrally values human beings deliberative abilities and abilities to think in complicated ways. She ends up saying that while that doesn't make us better, it does make us the only ones who can actively take part in making a better world for animals. She treats the other animals as kind of passive recipients of a handout. She calls them passive citizens rather than what they surely are, creatures who actively show by their behavior and by their vocalizing what they want and what they need. So that's my main difference from her. So my theory, it's based on a theory called the capabilities approach that I developed in the context of human beings with the economist and Nobel prize winner Amartya Sen. Although my version of it is rather different from his. We could go into that later if you want. But basically what it says is the central question to be asked in the human sphere is not about utility and not about gross national product per capita, but rather what are people actually able to do and to be? Then what I do, which Sen doesn't go along with, is I identify a list of central human capabilities. Capabilities are spaces where you're free to choose. And there are some that are central for human life. And I focus on things in the area of life, bodily integrity, bodily health, the use of your senses, imagination, and thought, and so on down down the list. I won't do the whole list. But anyway, the point is that we should be aiming in human development at giving people spaces to choose things that they value in these central areas. Well, so I thought, why don't we develop a theory on that basis for animals too? Each Each animal species has things that they they want and that they need. And uh, so they too need spaces to choose the things that they want and need. So what I say in my theoretical account is that minimal justice requires that we give each kind of animal opportunities to do and choose the things that are characteristic of their form of life up to some reasonable threshold level. And well, to get back to where you were heading before, I limit the theory to sentient creatures, creatures who are capable of feeling pain and who are seeing the world from a certain point of view. That is there, as it were, someone at home in there. And that appears currently, and I've read a lot of science now and I use it a lot in the book, that does not include insects as of right now anyway. And it probably doesn't include crustaceans, but it does include cephalopods like the octopus And it includes vertebrates and other creatures of the more obvious sort. So that's basically what I say about insects.
0: Uh, You mentioned uh, sentient beings. We did a show on uh, sentient beings with Jackie Higgins. You're probably familiar with her book, Sentient, How Animals Illuminate Human Senses. How do you, as a philosopher, separate yourself from your subject?
1: I think you know it's uh, any any philosopher has to always be checking what you do for bias in the direction of your your own personal self but also your own in this case your own species so when i lay out my theory it's very important to me to say it's the species form of life of the other animal it's not what we think the animal should do but it's their form of life well how do we know that well there we have to i think trust people who've spent lots of their lives with the other animals, who've studied the animals, who've seen what they go for, what their social life is like, what they seem to need. And we have to trust those people. With cats and dogs, I think we all can chip in. We are all very familiar with what cats and dogs seem to need and seem to want. But with baboons, we just don't Do we? I
0: mean, um, Martha, I I don't know whether you see this in, uh, in Chicago, but in California, you see people carrying their dogs around in their handbags, taking them to the table, feeding them like humans, treating them increasingly like humans. Um, how, in, in terms of your theory, for example, when it comes to dogs, what should and shouldn't we do in okay. terms of justice for animals? Should we let oh, them out I'm in the crazy. street? Should we drag them around in our backpacks?
1: Okay, all I was saying is that we can all participate in that debate because we all have access to information about dogs. We don't have access to information about baboons, for example. But no, I think most people treat dogs very badly. Dogs, of course, evolved and there's no going back. They evolved to be codependent with humans. So for sure, they need to live with humans and they need to lead whatever lives they lead in combination with a human household. But first of all, the word pet, I would ban that word pet because dogs are not toys. And that whole example of putting a dog in your handbag, that's example of treating a dog like a toy. Dogs are dignified animals. And I think the right word is a companion. A dog can be your companion, but then you have to respect the dog and figure out what it needs and what it wants, which will depend on its size and so on. What does it need to eat? How much does it need to eat? But particularly, what kind of exercise does it need? Most people, and I would certainly say in cities like Chicago, give their dogs far too little exercise. I had a dog when I was a kid, and I had a big backyard that was fenced that protected the dog. We could let the dog out and it could run around all day and make as much noise as it wanted to, and then come back in when it wanted to come in. And that's ideal. But I think in a city, you just have to think carefully. Are there enough dog parks around? If not, you should be out there as an activist trying to create the city, to get the city to, to create dog parks. But maybe you just need to choose a smaller dog. And How does this cro-
0: cross over in terms of our treatment of other people? Uh, in Chicago, there are lots of overweight people who aren't getting exercise either. How should we distinguish between our our treatment, say, of dogs and of people?
1: Well, I think all people need spaces for exercise, and so do dogs. And it's true that in most cities, the spaces for human exercise are very unequally distributed. I have plenty of chance to exercise because I live right on the lakeshore. And the city has not done well enough. I do think it's done better than in the past because there have been new access points to the lakeshore. So now wherever you are in the city... It's really quite easy on a bike, at least, or even with a wheelchair to get across and exercise on the lakeshore. So I think that kind of thing has opened up opportunities for exercise, but we need to do a lot more. In the winter, people don't want to go to the lakeshore. They want to go to a gym. And I you know, have an income such that I can go to a gym and I have a home. You can see the exercise equipment all around me, yeah, actually.
0: You're, I think most um, of your exercise, Martha, is picking up books getting up to the top. Show.
1: Not, not at all. I, I do a lot of heavy upper body weight training every day.
0: Yeah, no, and no, this- I'm teasing you. I, I know you're, you're, anyway, very fit. you're not the very theory. fit, actually. You've yeah. written a number of books on philosophy, on rights of one kind or another, feminist rights, um, other uh, uh, other rights when it comes to different groups of, of, of humans. To what extent is this theory of justice for animals, is it the next step, the next chapter? in the emancipation of one kind of group or another? Is it a separate category entirely?
1: Well, look, most of the other groups whose injustices I've worked on, women, LGBTQ people, people, impoverished people in developing countries, people with disabilities, these have in common that they're human beings. And so we, we, you know, the problems, in getting them to the options that they ought to have as humans, don't involve the kind of intellectual work that's required to figure out what to say about animals. Because we we know we have examples of a good human life. But we have very few examples, I think, of good animal lives. Because most animals live in spaces that are dominated by humans, but where humans do not play a fostering role. Sometimes they do, they keep poachers away in a large animal refuge. They make sure that the animals are not threatened by pestilential creatures and and so forth. But for the most part, humans have been very bad in their treatment of animals. So we need to learn, first of all, a lot that we can learn now for the first time. We have opportunities to learn because of people like Carl Safina and all the other people on your show who have done the legwork to get us information about animals. And so now we have access and we can figure out what animals ought to have. And then we just have to do it. And that means in the, on the land, we have to protect the habitats that are left. We have to create new habitats if we possibly can. In the seas where we think of the seas as, oh, that's a, one place where animals are free. No, animals are choking on plastic trash. Whales swallow plastic and it calcifies inside them like a plastic brick. And so they die that way. They also die from fishing lines. I think today in Congress, they're considering in the government expenditure bill, they're considering a rider, which is the people from Maine seem to want, which would allow these lethal lobster fishing lines to remain, which are dooming the, white, the right whale to extinction. So those are the things we have to stop doing we have to invent new new technologies for lobster fishing if we want that to continue. I don't particularly care if it continues, but I understand that people want to have have their occupation not destroyed. So then they have to use a kind of line that has been invented now that detaches when a whale when it gets wrapped around a whale. Uh, There are also noise pollution in the deep seas close to the shore. The noise pollution from the US Navy sonar program was so bad that it's actually been banned by the United States court for disrupting the characteristic life activities of whales. That's a case that I love, and I think it actually uses. Yeah, and it, it sort of touches. To I don't know
0: if you're familiar with the back of book, "The Sounds of Life," but it certainly touches on that. Um, huh. so sometimes I wonder, Martha. You know, every every, every historical period, uh, we always feel happy about ourselves and when we always look back and imagine how could they have justified slavery or the denial of rights to women or or whatever do you think that in a hundred two hundred a thousand years we'll look back at the 20th and early 21st century and think how could they have ever justified factory farming for example for chickens or other kinds of factory farming is this our our greatest crime
1: well, I don't like to rank crimes. I think we should stop all the big crimes. Uh, I obviously think there are plenty of crimes against humans that we're committing also. But no, I I do think it's likely that we'll look back on this century and say, oh, that was a terrible crime. But Bentham said that in 1798. He said the day will come soon when this treatment of animals will seem as terrible as the slave trade now does to right-thinking people in Britain. Well, uh, you know, it's 200, what, 230 years later, hasn't happened. So I hope, I'm really hopeful. And the reason I'm hopeful is I think the access we all have now through videos and films to new scientific information makes it much harder for us to avoid the damage we're doing.
0: What about the role of Darwin, Martha, in in all this and in... our sense of ourselves as a a species. Obviously, Darwin revolutionized how we thought about ourselves. Um, Is there a place for Darwin in in, in your theory? Bentham, of course, was writing before Darwin. How does Darwin change all this when it comes to a theory of justice for animals?
1: Well, I think he cues us in to what we should be looking for. Namely, each animal that survived to the present day has evolved to fit an environmental niche. And so if we look at the animal and we look at the environment, we can learn what it needs in order to flourish. And so, yeah, I mean, birds, for example, we used to think, oh, birds are very stupid, but that was silly in in the light of Darwin. We should have been thinking, how did birds survive? How did they evolve? How did they fit their environmental niche? And then once we start asking that kind of question, we can notice that birds have remarkable abilities some of which we humans don't have at all. Birds can navigate using magnetic fields, which humans certainly can't do, and they can find their way across the whole world that way. And so in many ways, birds are, they have a kind of specific intelligence, which we didn't think they would have because their brains are not shaped like ours. Yeah, Sarah um,
0: Montgomery is very good on that. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her work, but Yeah,
1: yeah. But you know, what's known as convergent evolution, Two species can arrive at the same abilities through a different evolutionary path. And so birds don't have a neocortex, but they have another kind of neuroanatomy that allows them to do all these amazing things that they do.
0: Martha, how much of this is bound up with arguments about the environment? And just this there, you mentioned the environmental niche. We had George Monbiot, a distinguished environmental journalist on the show recently, just won the Orwell Prize. He has a new book out, Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet, which is a book about feeding and meat. To what extent um, is your theory of justice for animals, does it need to be bound up in a broader regenerative theory or, or, or practice? on the environment, on farming, and indeed eating other species?
1: Well, I think to a great extent it does, but that's not the ultimate end of the theory. To me, justice is a matter of treating each individual sentient creature as an end and not a means. So that means that I don't think animals should be treated as a means to a fine environment. I do think that they're ends in themselves. And so that does mean that the environment that they live in has a big, big place in their good. And I think there might be other reasons for caring about the environment that are not reasons of justice. But for me, justice is about the sentient and it's about each and every sentient being. Trees are not subjects of justice. They're not sentient. Now, I I think trees are fine and there are many other reasons for caring about trees but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about justice. And I don't think it's an injustice to cut down a tree. Now, as I say, there are plenty of other reasons for caring about trees, but that's not what I'm talking about. Now, of course, animals are suffering largely because of the changes in our environment. Human overpopulation is one problem, In Africa, you you see this particularly, the the fact that elephants don't have enough to eat because humans are expanding and the trees that elephants need for their bark are in the villages. And so this is how you get conflict between elephants and villagers. But some of it, of course, is caused by climate change. And that's where my theory would intersect with concerned theorists who are working working on climate change. But I, I don't think that an ecosystem is an end in itself. I think it's, first of all, a supportive structure for sentient life, for animals and humans. But then there are other reasons, that is reasons, scientific reasons, and other ethical reasons for caring about ecosystems, but those are not reasons of justice.
0: You talk about dignity for animals, um, dignity and justice. You had an interesting Los Angeles time op-ed, which you conclude that um, there is no nation in which animals are citizens, they should be seen as citizens with rights when non-fulfillment is injustice. Is it conceivable to imagine animals in the future as citizens? Should we introduce the word citizenship when it comes to justice for animals?
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think it's not difficult to imagine if you're thinking about certain kinds of animals. By the way, Sue Donaldson and Will Kimlicka wrote a book called Zoopolis, where they developed this idea in a wonderfully clear way. If you think about dogs and cats, or if you think about even farm animals who are not being tortured in the factory farm industry, these animals are localized. And therefore, they can be citizens of the place where they live. And there's absolutely no reason why when a city of Chicago makes policies for the people in it, It can't at the same time listen to the voices of the animals who live there and make policy that takes their needs into account as well. But it's much more difficult for animals who cross city boundaries, state boundaries, even national boundaries. A lot of the animals in the world are not localized. So that means that they have to be thought of as citizens of the world, but that's difficult because the world has not gotten organized to do any such thing. And uh, well, at the end of my book, I talk a lot about attempts in law to answer the questions that I pose. And usually the more local you are, the better your chances are of doing what you want to do. Dogs and cats have lots of protection in law. Those laws aren't always enforced and I have a lot to say about that, but at least the laws are on the books. Other kinds of animals, birds, some birds are protected by a federal law called the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. But that's only the birds we don't eat because the political heft of the meat industry has already prevented them from even being mentioned in that really quite old law that goes back to the beginning of the 20th century. So, but if you then think of whales, well, they got some protection when they were in coastal waters from the US Navy's sonar program. But once they're out on the high seas, No one owns that space, but humans dominate it everywhere. So the problem is we can only solve that problem. The other thing I didn't get to was they're dying of not just eating plastic, but of noise pollution. You mentioned that because uh, oil companies are drilling and they need to know how deep it is at any one point. So they send air bombs down every 30 seconds when they're drilling to see where the ocean floor is in the place where they're drilling. So all these problems that are lethal for whales because they navigate by sound more than by any other sense. And so they they get stressed out and they are totally disrupted in their life activities by these noise bombs. That can only be controlled by international cooperation. Now there is an international group, the International Whaling Commission, but it was founded to make sure enough whales remain alive so that people can hunt them and harpoon them and use their oil. Now there are environmentalists who love whales who have taken some role in that body and there's a kind of quarrel going on between the whale eaters and the environmentalists. But what happens is that the minute the environmental whale protective people get in control, other, some nations drop out. So this year, the Japanese who love to hunt whales have dropped out of the International whaling Commission because they're they don't care anymore because it doesn't do anything for them so the international sphere it's really really difficult, and the only movement will come from a massive change in the consciousness of human beings, which I hope I can help to contribute to, but I think it's everyone's responsibility
0: well finally uh, Martha um the book is out um, first week of, of January I think you will do that I wonder we began talking about the sort of change in the zeitgeist uh, when it comes to thinking about humans and um, animals. The other thing I've noticed with many conversations with authors is a return to the values and traditions of pre-industrial indigenous societies. Do we have something to learn from previous versions of of who we are as humans pre-industrial, pre-Jeremy Bentham and his, Utilitarians, Can we learn something, for example, from native North Americans when it comes to giving more justice to animals? Or were they as guilty as much as we moderns are when it comes to injustice for animals?
1: Well, first, before I get to the indigenous peoples, I would point out that in the history of Western philosophy, we have some prominent examples of people who thought very well of animals. Porphyry and Plutarch in the ancient Greek world. And then go to non-Western philosophy, Buddhism and Hinduism have very, very valuable theories of good treatment of animals. As for indigenous people, sure, we can learn a lot and we should be learning a lot from them. And I would like to see more and better scholarship on indigenous peoples taught in philosophy departments. We're looking for such people when we search for jobs, when we're hiring people. I think the problem, of course, is that not everything they do is correct. They like to hunt whales, for example, and they've been one of the most vociferous defenders of killing whales on cultural grounds. And they have said, we we need this hunt to express our cultural values. Other indigenous peoples, that's the Inuit peoples who've said that, other indigenous people like to hunt deer. So, you know, not everything indigenous people say is sacred at all, and I would be just as critical of them as I would be of my own society.
0: Excellent.